It's as pastors, it's, it's funny. There's something in us that doesn't want to preach foundational stuff from the Bible. Like we have this, this need, this desire to feel like we have to come up with something absolutely unique and different every single week. And so oftentimes we don't preach the base fundamental stuff of the Bible because we want to reinvent the wheel each week, right? We want to try to tell you something this week that I didn't tell you last week and tell you something next week. And, and so we're trying to come up with something unique and different to say every single week on a book that is 2,000 years old, it gets kind of tough sometimes. And sometimes I think we miss the mark in what we're supposed to say in the search for what we want to say. And so I think it's interesting as we're going through the year of the Bible that we're seeing so many topics repeated over and over and over again. I mean, in, in, in the year of the Bible, I am seeing the same themes over and over and over. And so that makes me think, well, maybe it's okay to preach the same thing several times. So today I'm going to talk about Christ crucified. And I love it. This is what I was created to talk about. But, but the, the funny thing is, like, I, I, at first when I was like, man, I want to preach on Christ crucified, I was like, no, I did that at Easter. I did that at Easter? Of course, y'all were all here for Easter. The whole, all the Christers turn out for that one. <laughs> That's Christmas Easters, by the way. But really, like, why can't we preach this again? As a matter of fact, I think we're commanded to preach again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What that's saying is the world is talking about a lot of things. And there are a lot of churches that never preach this uh, because there's other things you can preach that are more popular. But we preach Christ crucified, and we should do it often because it's done often in the Bible. So today I'm excited that this is what I get to talk about. And we've seen this, this theme as we've been reading. We've seen, especially Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, we have seen a lot about blood, right? If you've been reading the, the old, there is a lot, I mean a lot about blood. It's like every other paragraph is about blood. There's something important. There's some theme in blood and, and this idea that for, for people to, for, for broken and sinful, impure people to come in the presence of a perfect God, there had to be this sacrifice and the sacrifice was blood because we couldn't come into his presence without dealing with our sins and blood was the way sin was dealt with. Listen to Leviticus. We're going back to Leviticus again. I have preached more out of Leviticus in the last three weeks than I did the first nine years of my Amen, yeah. It says this in Leviticus 16, 11, It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The life of a creature is in the blood. There's something special about blood in the Bible. And blood was the way sinful people came back into the presence of a perfect God. Sin caused the divide. And blood is the currency of, of, of atonement. Blood is the currency of making yourself right with God again. Blood is the, is the currency of the price for sin. There had to be blood. And so over and over, you see people sacrificing animals and goats and all these different things because there had to be blood. I don't know why God decided to make blood so important. I wasn't there when they had the meeting, 
when they had the committee meeting about why blood was going to be important, but it is. And so we need to understand there is something about blood. And so as I'm reading this stuff, I'm seeing this other theme developing in the Bible that I think is so important, especially for the Western church. God is not one-dimensional, okay? I hear all the time, God is love, God is love. Yeah, God is love, but God is also justice. Like God is mercy and God is completely mercy and he's completely love, but he is also completely justice and completely judgment. God is mercy, God is judgment, God is mercy, God is, he is all of those things. He is the completion of all those things. So we can't just keep saying God is love as if he's nothing else but love. He is love as he defines love, but he's also mercy and justice and judgment. God is all them things. There's a song that we sing in here. And um, I love this song, and so I'm not knocking it, but it's a song about, uh, well, let me just, let me just, I wish I had a pitch pipe. It says, you delight in showing mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Y'all remember that song? Oh, love, great love. Fear can I be found in you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is a band even necessary anymore? (laughs) That song though, right? We we like that. I love that song. You delight in showing mercy. I love it. And I think, yeah, that's true, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. In my life, mercy has triumphed over judgment. If you are here today and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, then mercy triumphs over judgment for you because you have been spared. And even for the Israelites, a lot of times mercy triumphed over over judgment. Like God said, here are the rules. And if you follow these rules, you can come into the presence of a holy and perfect God. But when they didn't follow the rules, judgment triumphed over mercy. Right? Mercy didn't eradicate judgment. They were both present. You know who doesn't think mercy triumphs over judgment? The goat who's getting his throat cut for someone's sin. Mercy. (laughs) Judgment. (laughs) Lambert did not walk around singing this song. Because for the goat and the sheep, I mean the camel, they were getting gutted right. They believed that judgment triumphed over mercy. But we seeing mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is true, but sometimes we sing that so much that we forget that mercy did not eliminate judgment. Judgment is still present. In the Old Testament, man, we read this theme in the Old Testament of judgment. And God's judgment doesn't make him evil. It makes him holy. We we get caught up in our human standards of judgment. Like, you can't judge me. How many times have we said that? But you can't, don't judge me. Right? We're always saying, don't judge me. Always telling somebody that because we shouldn't. We shouldn't judge each other's motives or each other's hearts. But God does not play by the same rules that we play by. God is the righteous judge. Because he is holy, because he is just, there must be judgment. There can be no justice without judgment. God is not bad for judging. He's God. And so that's what he does. And we see it in the Old Testament, this theme of justice judgment, but mercy and grace and love 
And all of these things in the Old Testament, all the blood and all the sacrifice and all the judgment and all the justice, it's all pointing to something, someone. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ. That's why I love that we're reading the New Testament and the Old Testament side by side, right? Because you see everything is pointing to Jesus Christ, this perfect sacrifice who will for once and for all take away the sin of the world. And everything is pointing to him. But before you can fully understand the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, you must understand the judgment and the justice of God because the New Testament won't mean anything to you if you don't understand the old. We got to get this right, guys. This is foundational, fundamental. Mercy did not eradicate judgment. But when you understand that God was full of judgment, full of justice, full of grace, and full of love, then the Son of God, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ who came full of grace and truth, mercy and judgment, starts to mean a lot more to you. So today we're, we're going to read Mark chapter 15. And before we read this, I'm going to ask you guys to, to try your best to humble yourself. Because for many of you, you will have heard this story before. I'm asking you to hear it with new ears. I'm asking you to hear this as if it's the first time. And for somebody in the room, this is your first time. And I'm praying by the power of God, your heart and eyes are opened up to the truth. But for all of us, humble yourself as we remember Christ crucified. Mark 15 says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him mixed, uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you're gonna destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those, crucif those crucified with him heaped insults at him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. All right, hold on. Man, God let me see this in a new way this week, and, and I'm praying that, that you see it fresh too. Use your imagination. I, I ask y'all to do this a lot. Like y'all probably think I'm a, I'm a kindergarten teacher in my day job. Use your imagination with me for just a minute, okay? I want you to pretend in your mind that you've read the Old Testament and this is your first New Testament reading. And so you've read this story of a God who because he hated sin, he flooded the earth and thousands of people died. You've read this story of a God who would open up the earth and swallow armies. You've read this story of a God who sent plagues, who sent disease. You read this story of a God who killed the firstborn son of every Egyptian. You have read of a God who hates sin and will eradicate it from his people. Now imagine you're reading this and you get to this point in the story and you realize that now God himself through his son, Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross. He became one of them so that they wouldn't have to pay for sin. 
He's gone down there. Now they've beaten him. They've spit on him. They've tortured. They put a crown of thorns and they're crucifying him. They're laughing and spitting. And now imagine darkness comes over the land. If you've never heard this story before, what are you thinking? Here's what you're thinking. God is about to take out his revenge on those sinners, right? If you'd never read this story before, you'd be thinking, oh, darkness. Darkness is symbolic for judgment. God is going to judge these people. For thousands of years, God's hatred towards sin has been burning. And now they have taken his only son, God himself, and abused him, tortured him, God, once and for all, here it comes. Judgment day is coming. God is gonna wipe the earth with these people. Now it's personal because when you mess with my family, it's personal. The son of God, now it is personal. Everything, all of God's anger, all of God's wrath about to come down on the sinners who have hung his son on a cross. And the next words I'm about to read, I pray to God you never forget that you never ever lose the glory. Verse 34 And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me. Not not the sinners who hung him there. Not the Roman who, who jammed the spear in his side. Not the friend who betrayed him, not the friends who left him, not the high priest who made fun of him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the verse continues. When some of those standing near heard, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the anger of God towards sin, all the wrath, all the power, all the fury, judgment day had come, and it all landed on the back of Jesus Christ. What he hated the most, he became so that we might never become what he was dealing with. Why have you forsaken me? And I want you to understand this. This is important. Go back and read Psalm 22 again. Jesus is not asking a question when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. This is not a question. God, what's happening? Jesus was not surprised by this. For all of eternity, Jesus Christ knew this moment was coming. He's not saying, God, why have you done this? What he's saying when he says, God, why have you? He's saying, God, God. He's crying out in pain the same thing you would cry out if you were going through. You would cry out to the only name that could possibly save you, the name of God. And so Jesus is crying out in pain, God, God. Then he breathes his last. And of the physical pain he endured on that cross, it pales in comparison to the spiritual pain he went through. If anyone understands the power of God, it's Jesus Christ. He's been with him for forever. That spiritual desert we talked about last week, multiply it times a billion. The spiritual pain of being lost, deserted, every sin that would ever be committed, 
every sin that had ever been committed placed on the back of the one who never committed a sin. God's wrath and God's judgment came that day. And it came to God. The judge paying the price for those he should have judged. The most incredible moment in all of history. In the most incredible act of grace and love the world would ever know, justice and judgment were carried out. When you see that cross, I think too often we see the cross and we just see the word grace. That cross is the intersection of grace and judgment. It's the intersection of mercy and justice. It's the fullness of everything, of God's love, of God's anger, of God's mercy, of God's power. It all came together on that day. God's love for us is not reckless like that song says. I'm sorry. God's love for us is well thought out. There's nothing reckless about it. It's ferocious. It's strong. It's jealous, but it's not reckless because this was always the plan. This wasn't an afterthought. He didn't stumble into this. From the beginning of time, God knew what he was going to do. From the beginning of time, Jesus knew that he would pay the price for these people. And yet they did it anyway. That's not reckless. That's counting the cost. That's well thought out. Grace and justice combining in a way the world would never know. And we see this theme again in the Bible of God being fully judgment and God being fully justice and God being fully love and God being fully grace. And I think there's something that, that I want to make sure that we, we get today, and this is so important to me right now. I don't, God is just wanting me to sit in this space for a little while. And I, I know y'all, like, he's, he's on this same thing over and I don't care. Until we get this, I'm not moving. God is, is all these things, and the day that, that Christ hung on the cross, mercy didn't end, right? That wasn't the last of God's mercy, and it wasn't the last of God's justice. Mercy still exists, and judgment and justice still exist, and that's why we have to get this right. God didn't die on a cross so that we could go on sinning. He died on the cross to set us free from sin. Listen to Romans 6.1. This is... This is amazing. Romans 6, 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you understand what he did for us? You you know what the biggest difference between the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was? You know what the difference between those two things was? Everything. Everything was the difference between those two things. This animal being gutted for you, this paid for us sin. Jesus Christ dying on the cross paid for all the sin. This animal being sacrificed, you had to do it over and over and over. This was the perfect sacrifice. It happened once. You're not required to do a physical sacrifice anymore. You turn, your your spiritual sacrifice is to repent and accept what God has given you. But but I want you to hear me. And I'm not a hellfire damnation person. Y'all know me better than that. But the truth is this. If you do not accept the grace and the mercy, then you have called down the judgment and the justice. 
if hear me, guys, hear me. Somebody needs to hear this today. And I'm not trying to scare you into a relationship with Jesus. I'm just telling you the truth. If you do not accept the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have called down the justice and the judgment. And that is not where you want to be. You know, there's something about this story that, that I always overlook, though. And today, this week, I had to repent to God because I've forgotten about, I don't know, one of the cooler parts of the story. Like, he took the punishment that I deserved, right? And he took the punishment that you deserved because we're all, we were all sinners apart from Christ. He took the punishment that I deserved, but he gave me the reward that, that was his. That's the part I forget. He took my punishment, but he gave me his reward. Co-heir with Christ. Come on. Son or daughter of the king. I get his place. Like I get his glory. I get that power. Like I get that freedom. He took my punishment and he gave me his reward. Listen to what, what Mark said in chapter 8. He said, for, whatever, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whoever will lay down their life for Jesus Christ will find the life they were created. And I don't know what that looks like in your situation. For some of you, that might mean accepting Jesus Christ for the first time. For others, it might be laying down your life in your home because you're in a difficult situation. It might be laying down your life at your work. It might be laying down your life for a friend. It might be shutting your mouth and stop judging everybody and just love in the way that Christ has loved you. I don't know what it means for you, but I know that when you lay down your life, life is what we receive. The fullness of life. Like life you couldn't get on your own. Yeah, come on. This is the reward, his reward. Gosh, man, the glory of Jesus Christ for us. Judgment didn't stop on the cross, but neither did mercy. And you have the choice, man. You have access to whichever one you choose. People say, I can't believe an angry God would send people to hell. He doesn't, but a holy God allows people to make their own choice. You choose. And not, not only did it not end on the cross, but one day, and this is something we don't talk about in church either because this will make me weird again, but I'm out there now, so I might as well just ride it. Uh, right at this point, I don't, there's no turning back. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> he's coming back again. Why don't we, why don't, he's coming back again. The, the cross, that was a prelude He's coming back again. I skimmed. Have y'all done any of your reading uh, through the voice thing on the, on the little app? So I was reading this on the voice. I was reading this on the voice thing as James, the British James Earl Jones was reading to me on this. And I was doing something else, you know, brushing my teeth or playing Fortnite or something. And so I really, I really didn't pay attention to this verse. And then God said, well, why don't you go back and read that? Because that was pretty serious. That was pretty important. So I went back and read it again. Listen to Mark chapter 14. It says, therefore... Keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. He's coming back again. Christ is coming back again. Like, and there's not going to be baby in a barn when he comes back. This isn't six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus coming back. 
This is a real deal. Like he's coming on a white horse. Justice and truth is what it'll be called. Coming with a sword. You will know that God has returned. There will be no doubting. I wonder if that's God. No, it will. You will know. You will know. And he's coming back and he's coming back with authority and he's coming back with justice and he's coming back with judgment and he's coming back with mercy and he's coming back with love and he's coming back in the fullness of everything that makes him God. And we need to watch and we need to be ready. We need to talk about some things that make us uncomfortable because I don't know how much longer we've got. Now, if someone tells you they know the exact day or time, run. <laughs> don't listen to that dude. Or girl, they can lie too. <laughs> He's coming back. So what do we do? Like, I'm like, all right, yeah. All right, what do I do with this, God? What do I do with the fact that, that you are full mercy, the fullness of mercy and the fullness of love, like in a way that makes no sense to me. Love is you define it, mercy. But you are the fullness of judgment and you are the fullness of justice. And you have set me free and I'm free from sin. So what do I do? Here's the first thing you do. You repent. Jesus Christ walked around saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. I mean, that's, we're offended by that now. If someone tells us to uh, repent, you repent. Don't judge me. Remember, he has the right to judge. And he says, repent. If there is sin in your heart that you have not dealt with, turn and confess it to God. Like, do not become apathetic to your sin. Do not become lazy in your sin. Turn and confess it to God. And then how many times will, will you forgive you? Seven times, 770. He will forgive you over and over and over. But this process of fall, repent, move forward. Fall, repent, move forward. It's a stair step. You're moving up and you're getting closer and closer to Christ. It's not do the same thing over and over and over and just keep thinking that God is a fool. God's not, the, not he's not senile. He, he remembers, he knows over and over. Don't try to trick him. Try your best to live different. And if you fall, live different again. Repent, repeat over and over and over. God will sanctify you. He will change you. He will rid your life of the sin and he will change the desires of your heart. But don't give up and don't sit in sin because that is a dangerous place to sit. People say, uh, freedom in Christ, I'm covered by the grace. I can do whatever I want. Yikes. The Bible says, woe to those who know me and turn their back. So that's the first thing we do. Repent. Second thing I think you do is when you look at that cross in here, you don't just see grace. You see grace and justice, love and judgment. See it all. And don't ever forget that he is the fullness of everything. Please quit making our God one-dimensional. Does he love you completely? Absolutely. In a way that no one will ever love me. My God loves me. But my God still expects me to be transformed and be changed. He accepts me fully with the plans of fully changing me. <laughs> What's the third? Remember, pastors make three points, so here's the third one for you. What's the third thing you can do? Third thing you can do is this. Tell somebody about Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about Facebook. And I'm dang sure not talking about those stupid signs that tell people repent for the end is near. I'm not talking about any of that. And if you've got one of those signs, I'm sorry. It's, it's not stupid. It's good. <laughs> I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about one around, one around judging people. I'm talking about tell somebody about Jesus. Like, you don't have to be a pastor to tell somebody about Jesus. You've got a story, right? By the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony, he will overcome. 
And you can get in a door that I will never get in. You can talk to somebody that will never talk to me. You have a story. So while we're in this time, this, this, this year of our church of going deeper and being called out, let me just ask you, and don't answer, because most of us aren't going to like the answer. When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ? We spend so much time worried about I, me, 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 but when is the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ? If you believe that our God is fully justice and fully judgment, but fully grace and fully love, why are we not telling? And if we believe Christ is coming back again, there should be a sense of urgency. Tell someone about Jesus Christ. Like love someone enough to tell them, love someone enough to show. I'm not, I'm, I'm that person. I'm telling people in Subway, Dollar General, I'm like, welcome to aisle three. Do you know Jesus? I, I'm, I've become, I don't even care anymore. Like I'm fully nuts now. <laughs> I was just a little nuts earlier. Tell somebody. For real, when's the last time you invited somebody? I'm not, we're just family here. When's the last time you invited somebody to church? Or is that my job too now? When's the last time you invited someone, priesthood of the believers? When's the last time you invited somebody here? This is the truth. I, 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 was, I was in Dollar General or Family Dollar. Actually, I, I kind of prefer Family Dollar, but I was in Family Dollar the other day. I like it, whatever. And um, I, I was talking with a motive and an agenda to a lady in line. I invited her to church. I invited the cashier to church. And there was a boy walking by outside, and I invited him to church. That's not to brag on me because I, I am... I am the most wretched sinner in this room. It's the power of God through someone who's willing to open their mouth. Who are you inviting here? To even, if you won't tell them, let me tell them. Bring them in here. I'll tell them. <laughs> somebody here will tell them. What are we doing? Go get somebody. Go get somebody. Like love somebody enough to tell them about Jesus. We may not have forever, guys but we can change the world if we'll move. Christ crucified, don't forget it. Christ crucified, don't forget what he's done for you. Christ crucified, don't forget it's time to do something for somebody else. Christ crucified, this is our message. This is who we are, amen?